everyone, and welcome to the Learner's Corner. This is the podcast for lifelong learners where we learn from anything and everything. My name is Caleb Mason. My name is not Caleb Mason. It is, in fact, Todd Ixenbaugh. And we have a great episode for you today. Today we are talking with J.P. Palu Fry. And J.P., he's a psychologist and international performance coach um, to many athletes and coaches, senior business leaders of uh, Fortune 500 companies, um, and get this, and the CIA. What? And he's an author as well and really we just have um kind of a wide-ranging conversation this is going to be with him about um how how to improve your performance levels emotional intelligence um just honestly just a lot of great things i'm super excited about this however before we get to that we have our learner's corner recommended resource of the week and todd has got it this week yep so i um starting the new the 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 new year i i'm just Looking at books, and y'all know that we like to read a lot. And so one of the books that I've really um, enjoyed, and I read it years ago, but I've, I picked it back up, and I've, I read it slower this time. And and I really enjoyed it. It's by um, Austin Kleon, and it's called Show Your Work. And so he wrote this book um, in 2014, and um, it's a book um, for people who create things. And so artists, but it, it's for anybody, really about what it means to, to show your work. So all of us, we create things, all of us, we do things. Um, but how do we leverage um, showing it and, and getting what we're doing out there? And that could be whether it's our work, our job, or if it's the stuff that we do when we come home at night and we go into our workshop and we create things. Um, for Caleb and I, you know, we do this podcast uh, and we, we read, we do all these different things. And so it's really been helping me think through how to begin to put content out and to show others, um, show others our work. And so uh, it's been a great, it's been a great read, um, Caleb. I got, I got just a little nugget, I got just a little nugget for you. Okay. Um, one of the things he suggests is um, every day you should be taking pictures, recording, or doing something where you're just getting ready to build up content and little things to share. Whether it's a quote that you saw on a wall um, or whatever that you take a picture of, it, and you tweet it out on, put it out on Twitter. Um, or whatever, just something little every day adds to something much, much bigger. Well, and speaking of that, we have some stuff in the works that we are pretty excited to talk with you yeah. about, but we're not quite ready yet. But what's happening um, at the end of this month, Caleb? What is happening at the end of this month? Well, I mean, we've got a new episode that we do every month now. Yes, you're talking about the one that's going to happen at the end of February now? Yes. Well, we are going to be sharing uh, some of the things that we learned about. We're going to be doing this as, on the last Thursday of every single month. Um, some of you, you might have listened to our one that happened in January just a few days ago. Yep. Um, but we're going to be sharing uh, kind of some real-time stuff of what we've learned throughout the month. You know, we did, and we've done an episode really the last couple of years about all the things that we've learned about. Well, we did it at the end of the year, and it was one thing. We got a ton of great feedback from we the did. one we did for 2018. Yep, and so we're going to be sharing some stuff that we're going to be learning about um, month to month as well. Which is going to be awesome. Um, and so it's going to give us a chance to be able to just nerd out and be able to uh, put together some resources and some things that, that we feel like you guys were are really going to – guys and girls, Caleb. We need to quit doing that. You're the so one who said guys, guys I know, only. I know. I got you. Um, but just – making sure that we're sharing things and that we're putting it out there um, so that you yeah, but that, can that, learn something. That's not the only thing that we have working on. Uh-oh. But we can't talk about the rest of the stuff right oh, now. what? However. I haven't been a part of this conversation. We, we can talk about our interview that we had with JP. Are we going to do that now? We're going to do it right now. Here we Woo! go. Welcome to the podcast, JP. We're so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner today. I'm excited to be here, guys. You know, we we're really excited to talk with you about emotional intelligence. It's one of the things that we that we love to learn about. And just as we kind of get started, um, I wanted to ask you when when did you first encounter this idea of an emotional intelligence, and what what made you want to pursue it? Yeah, that's a great question, and um, you're going to have to probably edit half of this out just because uh, it, it could be. Uh, potentially a long story. Um, after I finished my undergrad, um, I spent uh, a year in Asia and I got really interested in 
mindfulness and Buddhism. And my mother is the president of the Catholic Women's League, and she has been for many years. So to think that her son was in some Buddhist monastery kind of freaked her out. But uh, mm-hmm. she handled it pretty well. And, uh, and that was the beginning. That was like 19... 19- 90, 1989, 1990, so some, some time ago. And I just got really interested in this whole internal technology that is mindfulness. And, you know, today mindfulness has become, you know, a, a bit of a thing, which is fantastic. Mm. Um, but at the time, I mean, my parents didn't quite understand, you know, what it was. I mean, my parents didn't quite understand what I did for many years, actually. <laughs> but anyway, um, so, you know, I then went on to do grad work and clinical training and other things and came to, and in that training was all around psychoneuroimmunology, how we think affects our nervous system, affects our behavior, our biology, our immune system, etc. And got really excited. I had some athletes. So I was working in a psychiatric hospital at an outpatient clinic for people who were stressed or had chronic pain, teaching them mindfulness. And then some athletes uh, kind of took the course or asked me about it, and some business people, same thing. And it became, this is, again, you know, 93 or 4 or 5 in there. And what we were really teaching was this idea of managing emotions under pressure. And then it just kind of evolved from there. So that's the early kind of, I could tell you a lot more about that, but that was the early part that got me interested in. And then started to work with athletes. You know, I've been to a number of Olympic games, as I'm sure you guys know or listeners may not know, or work with NFL, NBA teams, and then a whole rack of other folks who are under pressure, who need to manage emotions, who need to work and collaborate with others, who need to be resilient. And so fortunately, um, you know, mindfulness, emotional intelligence, all of this is, is part of what allows us to manage ourselves in these challenging situations in order to be our best self, in order to show up as we want to show up, it, in order to think more clearly, be more decisive, work more effectively. So that's, it started you know, some time ago, and uh, I've just been loving it ever since. Yeah. Was there, was there a moment to where you know, maybe as you were exploring this subject that um, that that you maybe displayed uh, an act or a lack of emotional intelligence that really maybe reinforced for you that um, that, man, this is a really important idea that I need to take it more seriously. And you mean me personally? Yeah, you personally or even yeah, something that you sure. saw. Yeah. Yes. Well, no, I can speak about me personally, for sure. I mean, how about every day? You know, <laughs> you know, when you're an entrepreneur, and, and you guys are, in, in, of course, as well, but I've been an entrepreneur now for 20 years, and my goodness, um, every day there are challenges. Every day, you know, relationship challenges, growing a business challenge, managing a business. Um, 14 months ago, we brought on a president, so I am not the president anymore. Um, I'm still pretty involved in the business and, and and chairman of the business. And it's, I mean, it's, it's hard, like ups and downs. And, you know, on the personal side, I have three children and, you know, that's challenging. So I think there's a daily reminder, if we're aware, I mean, here's what we know, you know, we, we, we survey 40,000 people a month at our organization and we've done it for many years. And one of the things that we know, what we look for are patterns. And one of my favorite stats of all the research we've either done ourselves or other people have, have um, conducted is this. High performers are imperfect, but they extract three to five times more information from the same opportunity to learn as an average performer. And, and the reason I bring that stat up is if we're aware if we you know had some self awareness, then we can actually be aggressive in our learning. And so for me, it's kind of every day. Um, I'll give you one particular example, though. And, and I don't know why you know I'm talking about this this monastery experience again, but it was very clear to me, you know, 28 or nine years ago, whatever it was, sitting in a monastery, and there was this bird, uh, like a macaw bird. I don't actually know if that's the right. Term for this kind of bird, but it makes this sound like caw, caw. it just would be relentless every day, all day, 
And, you know, it would just trigger me and get me so frustrated. And it was, I think, one of those moments when you realize, and it took a while, like many days, when, and probably longer, but when you realize, actually, it's not the sound, it's my reaction to the sound. And I think that might be one of those kind of critical moments, those inflection points when I realized, wow, I mean, we have a choice. Like, we, we truly can choose, like, if we're aware that we don't have to react in the same way. And so while it happens every day, um, and I'm hopefully aware of it and able to grow from it, I, I would say that, you know, 29, 30 years ago, that made me realize, wow, we have a choice in B, there's a technology, there's stuff we can each do and learn. And I love your podcast because that's what you're all about is how can we give individuals insights and tools so that they can choose better more of the time in their lives. Mm -hmm. So I want to go back to something that you said. You talked about um, how the, the high performers um, get, I think you said three to five times more information. It's that stat that you mentioned um, compared to other people. So how, how do those high performers extract that information um, that leads to more results? Or what are the things that they do? Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's a great question, and in some ways, it's somewhat different for for you know every individual is going to be slightly different in how they extract that information. But I can tell you there are some patterns again. One is to be non-defensive, and look, I suffer as much as anyone from me getting defensive at times. But to sit there and to really try to be non-defensive and to change your mindset from being certain to being curious. And that, to me, is a really big, it's so simple to say. You know, any, any listeners right now, I'm like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But in the moment of pressure, in the moment when we're feeling judged, right? So a big part of pressure is when there's something called social appraisal, when we're feeling judged by others. And, and that, that has so many uh, kind of consequences to our behavior that most of us are not even aware of. But as soon as we start to feel judged, you know, you guys want this podcast to do well and, you know, you want to do well in your relationships. And, you know, when you're in a pressure moment, all of a sudden you're feeling, wow, being judged. And that that affects our brain. It affects our behavior. And it can make us defensive. And so a big thing that we try to challenge, you know, our, our work is really now with leaders and organizations, not even just leaders, individuals and organizations who are facing disruption, facing challenge. And so for them to be A, aware, and that's that self-awareness piece to start, to know, hey, I'm getting triggered, I'm getting defensive, or I'm shutting down and becoming certain that I'm right there wrong. So to be curious and non-defensive, those are the, the first big places to start. But then there's a whole bunch of other things around, can you see even that feedback that you're getting in the moment as an opportunity, not a crisis. Again, we amplified it, I haven't said this part, but we amplify the negative. Because we amplify the negative, because we're trying to protect our designer genes for the next generation, we'll amplify the negative as a way to protect ourselves. But the problem is that then we're, we're, we're cut off. We get very certain about things, not curious. And in this environment right now where there's just so much change and so much kind of challenge for individuals to have a set of tools to be aware, be non-defensive, be curious, not be certain, is is goes a long way to kind of extracting more and, and seeing things as an opportunity, not as a crisis. So you you mentioned one one idea that is really key whenever it comes to emotional intelligence and that's self awareness. What's one or two things that uh, that that you would suggest that that help people become more self-aware? Sure. Um, and let, let's just broaden it up for listeners. You know, when we think, what is emotional intelligence? Well, I mean, it is, it starts with self-awareness, and then it's emotional management, and then it's emotional connection. And in our model, those are the three kind of pillars. So self-awareness, emotional management, emotional connection. And it's important for for everyone listening to know that because it puts self-awareness in its proper place. So self-awareness. Um, are we aware 
uh, of what our triggers are. Uh, you know, when somebody says, like, what is it particularly for us that puts us in a place of being defensive or, you know, reacting in, in a way that is, uh, that impacts people in a negative way? Are we aware, number one? And so there's a couple parts to this. One is, What's the trigger? But number two, how does it show up for you? And I'll give you an example. When I'm getting triggered, I have um, what we call our big three. Each of us on each, every listener, I, I, I would challenge every listener to really think about this in your own experience. What are your big three? So I'll tell you my big three. When I'm uh, in a, let's say, pressure moment or any moment and I get triggered, this is how it shows up for me. So the big three is all about how it shows up <clears throat> for each of us. And for me, um, I feel heat on my forehead. I don't feel butterflies in my belly, which some athletes I work with do. I don't, my shoulders don't rise. I don't get a clenched jaw. These are all different things that people will experience. And, you know, in our work, we've heard it all, so to speak. And, and that's not me. For me, it's heat. So there's three, my big three. Number one is heat. Number two is when I get really certain that I'm right and they're wrong. And that's that certainty versus curiosity. When I'm really sure that, you know, 100% I'm right, that, that's, a, again, part of my big three that is a bit of a red flag that says, hold on here. You know, is that really true, JT? And then number three is when I get the sense of urgency. I need to send this email right now. I need to say something in this meeting right now. So when I get that sense of heat, certainty, and or urgency, that's a red flag for me to say, hmm, geez, JP. So these are my self-awareness cues, you could say. What we know about the brain under pressure is that when we're under pressure, we, we actually lose some um, kind of working memory and, and we get more rigid. And so we actually, at the very time we need to see more, you know, with a wider aperture, we actually get closed down. And so, it's almost ironic, but it's just true. This is what causes us to have reactions that have impact we don't intend. So I'll challenge everyone, know your big three. And that would be probably, you know, for what we can do over a podcast, I think tons. And so here's one other key point. Of your big three, one of them needs to be physical. What I mean by that is when we're kind of getting caught in, you know, uh, reacting and um, getting triggered and reacting. We can get so cognitively involved, involved in the story that we don't realize that we're going down that pathway of reaction as opposed to a different pathway of, you know, responding versus reacting. And so one of our keys is to feel it in our body. We'll feel it in our body before we'll know it cognitively because we're so caught in the story. So listeners, as you're kind of going through this, Identify your big three, but make sure one of them is physical. Because if you know one of them is physical, when I get a little bit heat on my forehead, that's like, okay, you know, am I, am I also getting certain and urgent? All right, maybe I'm going to wait, you know, 18 minutes, which, you know, cortisol is mediating chemical and all of this, and it's got a half-life of 18 minutes. So for 18 minutes, I know I'm not going to be as smart as I normally am. So, JP, don't send that email. JP, don't say what you really want to say in this moment. because Chances are, it's not going to land very well. Okay, so you you mentioned um, you know the other the other two parts of emotional intelligence, and I would be remiss if I didn't ask you know uh, what what's one or two things that we can do to better manage our emotions because you know just just as you um, ha- had mentioned, that's that's something that I think you know we can be right in the moment, but our emotions often, um, cause people to not, to, to hear us. And so what's, what's one or two things that we can do to better control our emotions whenever it comes to emotional intelligence? Yeah, that, that's a great, great question, Caleb. I, I would say this, uh, all, all three of these pillars work together. So if you're self-aware mm-hmm. in the way that we're talking about, you, you know, sooner before you're further down the track, before you're pumping out tons of cortisol, that, wow, something's going on. And so you need to emotionally manage. Um, and so for us, the tool that we, you know, 
developed over many years. Uh, we've used with the U.S. Navy and Army, um, and, and part of it came in, in co-developing it with them, uh, with the pressure they experienced, what we call an SOS. And that stands for stop. Uh, and so the first part is to just know, is, is to stop, is to know, hey, I'm going down this pathway, and I need to hit the pause button. I need to disengage from the trigger, the situation, so I can re-engage more powerfully, so I can re-engage with more of my working memory, more of my IQ, more of my experience, more of my expertise, more of my wisdom. And so we need to just stop. And so that's almost where the the self-awareness part leads into emotional management. Second part, we need to oxygenate. So the O on SOS is oxygenate. Take a mindful breath down to your toes. Why do we do that? Well, we know it turns on the left prefrontal cortex to calm the emotional part of our brain, the amygdala. So boom, take a breath. And there can be a number of things that we do in that moment around kind of oxygenating and stopping. So if we're in a meeting, we need to do certain things. If we're on our own, we need to do certain things. And, and this is kind of what we teach, you know, in our, our training programs. So, you know, we have an assessment training coaching practice and have for 20 years and you know, we, we work with lots of organizations and we, we, we literally teach them how to look for themselves, how to use this template of SOS in a way that works best for them. So it's not kind of one size fits all. It's okay, when you're in that situation, what do you need to do um, to stop and oxygenate? And that's going to be slightly different for everyone. But, but once you do that, once, once you realize, okay, I'm going down that reaction pathway, that cortisol pathway, um, I need to stop watching And then S, the final S is seek information. We can jump to judgment based on less than 5% of available information, which is extraordinary. So we're in a situation, we're feeling judged, we're starting to react from a trigger, and we can go down a pathway, and we can start jumping to judgment because we're trying to protect ourselves. So in that moment, we need to, again, widen the aperture. Seek information. There's a number of questions we can ask in that moment um, that help us you know, manage ourselves and manage our emotions more skillfully. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, it's so I, – I absolutely love that you're saying this um, because literally um, – and I didn't know, I didn't know about, the, about the SOS – um, but this literally happened to me this this week. Um, I got sent um, an, an email um, from uh, about about the team that I work on, and it it was some information that I was like, "Oh my!" I was I was I was getting a little bit upset about it. And I remember, um, you know, we were going to meet the next day to talk about it. And I just remember thinking, you know, I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna worry about it anymore because there's there's nothing that I can do about it until I find out all the information. Why why do you think why do you think it is though that there's because especially immediately for me there was a quick instant to go, you know, to assume and work off incomplete information and it ended up being um at least for me in my situation and it ended up being a completely different outcome um than I thought it was going to be and it ended up being good too. But why are we so quick to rush to make judgments in that information? Yeah, that's a great question. And again, this is part of what each of us need to understand if we're going to be better under pressure. And so, you know, the answer to the question really does, this, this is going to sound a little maybe over the top, but set us free. In, in the sense of if you know we jump to judgment based on a small amount of information, less than 5% of available information, it makes you realize, wow, I'm making a lot of decisions off of, as to use your words, incomplete information. And so if you know that, that that's a huge insight. And so why do we do it to answer your question? Well, we do it because we're trying to protect ourselves. And so, you know, millennia ago, when the sound in the bush might be something bigger that could eat us um, because it's stronger and faster, we couldn't wait to figure out, you know, is that a, you know, an African tiger or an Indian tiger? You know, is that a, you know, we, we can't stop and assess and get more information because we would get 
eaten, we would not pass on our designer genes. And so that's why we amplify the negative. That's why we get a bit of information and we jump to judgment. It, it's actually, in, in a lot of ways, um, adaptive. But, but the problem is that we don't now live with something that will eat us. What will eat us now, the trigger now is not so much getting eaten, it's disrespect. It's feeling disrespected. It's feeling judged and disrespected. It's kind of all that social appraisal stuff. And so in a meeting, when you get that email, your mind, all of and by the way, I want everyone to recognize this on this podcast. It's not just the three of us. It's not just JP, Caleb, and Todd. It's every one of us who are listening to this. This is the way our brain works. And so you're not flawed. I'm not flawed. This is just our, the design of our brain, the basic design of our brain. And so what we need are workarounds. And so the SOS is a workaround, right? The world has changed so fast, but our nervous system, our, our kind of neuroanatomy hasn't kept up. It, could, it can't keep up. That's why we need to be aggressive learners, right? I mean, that's precisely why, you know, the people who will succeed in this new economy are the ones who can let go of old ways of doing things, be aggressive learners. And, you know, that, that, that's, and it's not easy, right? It's uncomfortable, right? You look, temp- think about this. You look temporarily incompetent when you're learning something new. Mm. And we don't want to look temporarily incompetent because we want to be respected and loved by others out there who might be appraising us. It's this incredibly challenging situation. And I, I want everyone to recognize that's the way it is, and it's okay if that's the way it is. The real question is, are you going to be courageous? Right? Are you going to be courageous and look at yourself? Are you going to be courageous and look temporarily incompetent? Are you going to be courageous and be curious and be, be an aggressive learner? And then from that, so that's why, like, in a sense, the truth sets you free. Once you know this, you're like, wow. In some ways, it takes the pressure off. But it just means that, you know, you, you might not look as, as we all want to look temporarily. One of the things that that you you mentioned was about emotional connection. Um, what are one or two ways that we can develop emotional connection? Right. So if we keep following on this model of self awareness, emotional management, emotional connection, first of all, it's to understand we're not the only ones designed the way I just described. Right. Not only do we have an amygdala, this is that you know emotional part of our brain, but they, whoever the they are, people at work, people at home, our family, anyone we're interacting with, you know, in a supermarket, they have an amygdala, right? Like literally they're walking around with the very same emotional needs of wanting to be respected, wanting to be liked and loved and et cetera. And, and that may sound soft and squishy. It's not. It's just the way our brain works. And so if you can understand that, Again, it makes all the difference in the world. So when you're communicating with someone, you need to understand, okay, they have an amygdala. And if I'm overly judgmental, if I'm disrespectful, if I humiliate them, are they going to be able to hear me? They're not, right? You know, so I was with a senior team in New York last week. Um, this is one of the world's biggest companies, uh, working with their CEO and their you know, they're, they're seeing your team. And the discussion we had was they are feeling pressure because they're in disruptive space. They're worried, understandably, about their survival. They're worried, kind of individually, leaders about growing their careers. And so there's a ton of feeling of not being safe. And that's in any organization, but certainly in this one, it, it, was, it was ripe with this. So you can start to see how people now will not be as open um, and and feel safe to have the conversation. And and the reason I'm pointing all this out is it also means that people are going to feel more on edge. And so if you're trying to connect with someone in that environment, you're going to have to get really thoughtful about how do I make that person feel safe? How can I connect with them so that they don't trigger and lose working memory and can't hear me? And so a big part is is to actually be vulnerable ourselves, 
And so, um, you know, one of the great things that I've been lucky enough to do is work with coaches in the NBA and Olympic coaches and I coach coaches. And one of the things that I love is when you see a coach who has such a wisdom, and not everyone does, let me tell you, but has that art of being able to communicate with their players in a way where the, the player does not feel judged. Because when you can do that, they can hear you. When they feel safe, they can hear you. And so emotional connection, in my mind, come all the way back to the question, is understanding the neuroscience, understanding that they have an amygdala just like you, just like me. And so we've got to be thoughtful about how we have the conversation. Um, and then and then there's a, there's a bunch of other stuff, but I'll stop there. But that, that would be the start. So, so it's, it's really, a, again, about being an aggressive learner, not just now for ourselves, but for others who we're connecting with. You've mentioned a couple times um, organizations that you've worked with, um, high performers and, and, and things like that. And, and more and more um, we're hearing organizations talk about um, uh, valuing EQ over IQ. Not that intelligence isn't important, but, but that they can train people to do a lot of things. But one of the things that they can is with EQ. Uh, why why is why is emotional intelligence why is it such an important piece of high performers whether they're athletes um they're in, they're in the business world the private sector why has this become such a sought after and important piece um to high performance culture yeah great that's a great question so um part of it is that there's a limit um, and, and the way you just described IQ versus EQ, and what, by the way, for listeners, EQ, emotional quotient, we sometimes call it EI, emotional intelligence, but IQ versus EQ, what we know in the data is that IQ is not um, worthless. I mean, we need a certain amount of IQ, but we call it an entrance criteria. That is to say you need a certain amount, but once you cross a line of a certain amount of IQ, it ceases to become a real driver of your, of anyone's success, right? So, you know, for a lot of people, uh, they meet the minimum requirement of IQ. There's no question about that. But then what differentiates, what's the, the, the excellence criteria that is, okay, when you're under pressure, when you're in a disruptive environment, how do you manage yourself? How can you be resilient when you're facing challenges and setbacks? And experiments, because we all have to experiment way more now than ever before. How do you kind of self-manage through that? And so what we know is that you can have very, very smart people who, so if we look at the IQ side, who, I mean, they're brilliant, but um, maybe they're insecure. And so they always have to prove they're the smartest person in the room. And so nobody wants to work with them. I, I see that a ton. Or they're you know, smarter than everyone else. And it's not so much they want to prove it, although maybe they do, but it's like they get impatient when people can't keep up with them. And so, again, people don't want to work with them. Well, the problem is that today everyone has to work with everyone else, right? Even on this podcast, we have to be able to sit here and work with each other, so to speak. You guys need to work with the folks behind the scenes, you know, to put out this podcast. I work with an organization. I've got to work with them. And so if we can't collaborate, work with each other, which is not about IQ, it is about emotional intelligence, then we're done. You know, there's this great Japanese proverb that says, all of us are smarter than any one of us. I love that quote because it says we have to work together, right? And so, you know, emotional intelligence counts for, and, and we go into the data, but how much more it counts, but it counts for more than IQ. And, and it's really as, as much this difference between an uh, um, an entrance criteria and an excellence criteria. Can you, can you talk a little bit more about that of the entrance and an excellent criteria? I've never, I've never heard of that before. Yeah. Yeah. So it's almost like, um, you know, you've got an individual, if they don't meet that minimum threshold of IQ, well, they're not probably going to be able to do the job because there's just some, Requirement, you know, you got to be able to think. You got to be able to, um, you know, kind of use your 
uh, analytical ability. And, and, if, and if you don't meet that minimum threshold, then, then you're not going to be successful, and we know that. But what we find in organizations uh, in which we work is that many people cross that minimum threshold of IQ, so they're, they're plenty smart enough. And, and most jobs don't require high, high IQ, right? In fact, here's what's interesting. The higher you go up in an organization, the less IQ and technical skill count for determining who's going to become a top 10% leader. And I'll tell you the only IQ quality which seems to differentiate the average leader from the high-performing leader uh, is big-picture thinking, seeing that pattern of information out of the welter that's coming at you, right? So that ability to kind of see patterns. Beyond that, right, it's all emotional intelligence, right? It's all that ability to connect and work with the team. So you need them, so the entrance criteria you need a certain amount, but once you cross that certain amount, the difference in who's going to be successful is emotional intelligence. That's why we call it a, an excellence criteria. Um, and so, you know, your ability to collaborate, work with others, listen under pressure, you know, work with clients and really understand their needs, um, not get defensive, be open to learning, be decisive, by the way, be decisive. Sometimes it's, you know, we see leaders who will not deal with an underperformer, who won't move people out quick enough, who won't move people up quick enough because they're indecisive. And so all of this is about courage. All of this is about emotional intelligence. It's not about IQ. So that's, that's kind of how we would differentiate kind of using entrance and excellence criteria between IQ and EQ. Whenever you're working with uh, high performers or athletes or CEOs um, who struggle with indecisiveness, is it simply as, is it as simple as saying, hey, be more decisive or what do you do to help them become more decisive? Yeah, so you know that, that's a great question, and so let's let's take out decisiveness and let's put almost anything in there. So for the question, um, you could put anything in there, and and the answer is almost the same. I'll, I'll get specific for decisiveness, but the answer is almost the same. You need to work at it every day. You need to make learning an absolute, you know top priority for you. For instance, as I ask, you know, I, I, I do a lot of keynote speaking, as, as I, I know you guys know, um, and every audience I ask, you know, how many books do you read a month, a week? And people are just so busy that they don't have the same amount of time that they like to learn. And so you've got to be an aggressive learner. You, you've got to kind of, um, you know, I would say everyone, I really mean this, everyone needs a coach, right? So if Michael Jordan and Wayne Gretzky, two icons, LeBron James, if all of them get coaches, why wouldn't we want to get a coach? And so the answer is get a coach. The answer is, and I'm not just like saying that to sell coaching services, but go get a coach. Do someone, the coach doesn't have to even be a paid for coach. It could be a peer coach, but be an aggressive learner. Understand yourself, understand yourself under pressure. Do a 360, a multi-rater feedback to understand how you come across others. There's a ton that, you know, would be my answer to your question. Now let's get to decisiveness. We already talked a little bit about social appraisal. Part of the reason we're not decisive is that we're afraid of how we're going to be viewed by others, how our decision is going to be viewed by others, how our behavior is going to be viewed by others. and this is what stops us. So in decisiveness, it's about helping people tune into their gut around what they really think is the most important piece here. And then working on ways to not get as affected by others and others' opinion. Um, because if you, if you do get caught in that, you, you just will stay, you know, indecisive. I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, and I think I, I actually can use this. Uh, Doc Rivers, somebody who I've worked with, before. Um, for those who aren't basketball fans, you know, he's a basketball coach. Um, I worked with him when he was at the Orlando Magic. He went on to, he, he won a coach of the year. He won an NBA championship. He's now coaching the LA Clippers. And he is one of the, the, like, the great people who I've been fortunate enough to either work with or meet. He's amazing. And he, he said this to me once, and I'll never forget this. He said, 
JP, if you don't deal with the underperformers in the room, you'll lose the room. And, you know, if, if listeners are wondering, what, what do you mean by the room? What, what I mean by it is the dressing room, right? Everything's in the room, so to speak, just in, in terms of colloquialism. But what he means is that everyone's watching you, right, as a leader, as an individual. And, and they will lose respect for you if you don't deal decisively with the situation. And so not only does it affect the situation, but it affects our, the reputation that we garner, the leadership reputation we have in other people's minds. And so, yes, being decisive really matters if we're going to be effective in this day and age where there's just so much change and we have to take risks. And so a big part of this is really getting comfortable with taking risks. Mm -hmm. You know, as you mentioned, you you do give a lot of uh, keynote presentations. And as we were, you know, preparing for the interview, we were we were watching one of your talks. And in, in one of them, you, you open the talk by asking this question, why would anyone want to be led by you? And I think that that's such a powerful question. Um, why, why is it important that we ask ourselves that question from time to time? And then uh, what role does emotional intelligence play um, in this question as well? Thank you. I I love that question. I love to kind of challenge groups that I'm speaking to with that question. Um, and it really fits with everything we talked about on this podcast. Are you aware of how you come across? Are you aware of your impact? And not just in everyday moments, but when we're under pressure, there's more cortisol in our brain. And cortisol is a stress hormone. We've talked about it. But what cortisol does is it sears in memories. So when we're under pressure, whatever behavior we engage in, whatever decision we make, gets seared into the brain of everyone who's in that environment. So let's we're in a meeting and everyone's under pressure to meet a client's need. Well, whatever decision we make, behavior we engage in, gets seared into their brain because of cortisol in a more profound way, creating our leadership reputation in their mind. So... The point is that not all moments are created equal. And I will come back and answer the question, but I just need to kind of set the groundwork a bit. Not all moments are created equal. Our pressure moments matter for more. They have an outside influence on our success, on, on the reputation that we create in other people's minds about ourselves. And so why would anyone want to be led by you is an important question. How are you when the chips are down? How are you when, in those moments of truth? Do you become a bully or do you stay a coach? Are you decisive or do you become indecisive? Can you still listen and hear what somebody else is trying to communicate? Do they feel heard? This is all what drives why somebody would want to be led by us and why would they think they would choose. And it's a choice to sacrifice their time, their talent, their career, their time away from family um, for us. And what we know is that in the literature, people are engaged, not by an organization, people are engaged by their manager, by their leader. And so, you know, people don't leave organizations, people leave their manager. And so why would anyone want to be led by you? It's the most significant question that anyone who's in a managerial or leadership role needs to ask themselves. And again, it comes back to self-learning, understanding, especially when we're under pressure. This is why... You know, people, uh, I think, are more interested right now in, you know, how do we perform under pressure because of what pressure does to our brain and does to our reputation um, and does to the success of our company? How can we stay resilient when we're facing all of these challenges and we need to bounce back and we need to kind of, you know, we're over, people are overwhelmed. Like, there's a lot of suffering. I have to say that there's a lot of suffering today in the workplace. Um, and that word is a loaded term, I get it. But people are just, they feel overwhelmed and they feel, wow, I've got to hit my quarterly numbers and I've got to keep my team on side. I've got to meet, you know, deal with, you know, startups that are trying, you know, trying to, you know, disrupt us. And, and this, is a, this is difficult. And this is why, again, that question matters. Because if you're managing yourself well, you know, Peter Drucker on his, not quite on his deathbed, but in his last year of life said, if I could teach executives, Anything. It would be first 
and only to manage themselves. Because from that, everything else, you know, it's like the operating system of the brain. Once you can manage that, then you can put in, you know, all of the other software pieces you need. But if you're not managing yourself, if in those difficult moments you're coming across in a way that really impacts people negatively, A, they'll leave. B, they won't give you that discretionary or extra effort. And so I'll come all the way back. If you have a level of understanding of yourself, if you've developed some emotional intelligence, it's going to allow you to lead in a way where people will go through a wall for you. I'll tell you, the best leaders I have worked with, best coaches I've worked with, they literally, and I don't use this word in a, you know, in a, in a, in a not a soft way, but in a imprecise way, they love their athletes. They love the people they work with. And because they do, people know their intention. The people who, you know, are following these leaders, even if they do mess up now and then, even if they are imperfect, even if they do sometimes react in ways that, you know, are out of proportion, couldn't we all do? They give that leader the benefit of the doubt because they know their intention. And so to me, you know, when you're mastering more of your emotions and able to connect, then people will go through a wall for you. Mm-hmm. What What would you say, uh, you know, with, with the companies, the organizations, the teams that you've worked with, what are a couple of uh, the obstacles or things that hinder um, people becoming from becoming more emotionally intelligent and growing in that? Yeah, I think there's both an individual and organizational um, part of, the, you know, answer to that question. The organizational part is, I, I think, organizations, some absolutely put people first, um, but some don't, and they don't, they don't uh, invest in their people. And it's, it's a shame, really, because what we know from the research right now is that it's, you know, people eat strategy for breakfast, again, to quote, you know, famous Peter Drucker. Um, and so I'll say the shame on organizations who don't invest. I'm not just saying that because they would invest in organizations like us. Um, but I, it's just so obvious when you do this for enough time, when you do enough research, you realize, wow, those organizations who really put people first, who really invest in their people, their people really appreciate it and, and go that extra. So they, they will try to develop themselves. So, First answer is you know partly organizations, but you know having said that, and I and I say this to programs where I deliver keynotes, I, I'm like, why are you ever going to wait for your organization to develop you? That is so passive. That's so weak. You need to take it upon yourself. And and so to me, there are far fewer obstacles. To go back to your question, far fewer obstacles than ever around learning something like emotional intelligence. There's a ton of podcasts that talk, maybe not directly about emotional intelligence, although I'm sure some do, but about all of the stuff, like like this podcast, right? Or there's books out there. And, you know, I subscribe to a, a service that allows me to, I get like maybe three or four books a week in 20-minute video and audio kind of summaries. And I, I'm listening, in a sense, to three or four books a week. And, and the reason I do that is because I need to keep learning myself. And then when I, I think, oh, this book is good, then I'll go and buy it. And I'll go deeper into a book. But the, the obstacles are far fewer now than ever. They, they, they exist at the organizational level. They exist at the individual level. But, you know, really, I think um, I, people, you know, listeners need to ask themselves, do you want to, you know, kind of leave this life with regret? Um, and that sounds like pretty heavy stuff. But, you know, having left a bunch of Olympic Games, um, the worst thing an athlete can leave an Olympic Games with is feeling regret. Like, they didn't go for it. Like, they didn't risk. They, didn't, they weren't courageous enough. They, they didn't take their shots. And so I would say to everyone listening, take your shots, right? Don't be an obstacle to yourself. Don't be too proud to learn. Get out there and, you know, find all the different ways you can learn. There's a ton of learning on the internet. Go out, learn that. Get a peer coach. Get a, you know, a 
a paid coach, but there's, there's no reason in today's day and age why people, you know, should be held back from learning. And I think it's one of the great things the internet has done is revolutionized learning for those, you know, who are aggressive learners. Uh, what, what's that service that you use for anyone? Because I'm I'm interested in it myself, and for anyone who's listening, what's sure. the service? Sure. So I there's a bunch out there. Um, I use Brian Johnson um, Optimize dot me. I think is the actual like that's the website, and I think I pay, I I can tell you I pay ten bucks a month, and he's got like four hundred probably more now four hundred and fifty books that you can go and listen and, you know, get both either a PDF or a video or an audio. And again, you know, I travel a fair amount. I'm always listening to books. Like I'm just constantly trying to, you know, learn and and hear what's up there. And some books are a bit more academic, which I like because I I like a bit more rigor. Some are a bit fluffier, but that's okay. You know, there's always something to learn. Sure. As we're starting to to wind down, what's what's something that, you feel like is is definitely an, a more underappreciated or under and underestimated aspect when it comes to emotional intelligence, whether that's developing emotional intelligence or just something that people don't pay as much attention to in general with it. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I, I would say that there's a myth about emotional intelligence that it's about being nice. It's not about being nice. Sometimes it's about stepping in and doing what's uncomfortable for you and for the other person. And so it's the managing of emotions to do that difficult thing. I'll give you an example. So um, in our research, we find that people don't have the most difficult part of a conversation. They avoid it. And we call it the last 8%, right? So we get to 90, 92% of what I want to say to somebody you can think about this as somebody at work or even someone at home. But when we get to that more difficult part, the part that is there are consequences attached to what we're saying for that other individual, and we start to see that they're getting triggered and they're getting, you know, emotional. Well, many of us, as opposed to kind of approaching that last 8%, we avoid the last 8%. And the problem is that that person can't read our mind, right? They don't know we didn't have a full conversation. And and we even delude ourselves. Thinking, oh, we talked about most of the stuff we wanted to talk about, but we didn't. We conveniently left out the difficult part. And so we avoided that last 8% conversation. And to me, emotional intelligence is, can you step in, even though it doesn't feel very good for you, even though you might be impacting that other person, it might make them feel temporarily not very happy, right? We're so afraid of upsetting others. Emotional intelligence is to have a wisdom about emotion that, A, they're temporary. A, and there's a whole bunch of things about emotion. They prioritize information. They, it's a temporary state. And so if we can understand that sometimes we need to walk, you know, fight through that difficult emotion to deliver that important information, that last 8% conversation, to be decisive with folks, to not be, quote-unquote, nice, that this is what's going to drive better outcomes for everyone, you, them, the organization, everyone. And so to me, that's, that's another part of our, like, so in, our, in our, you know, our programming, we have a program around emotional intelligence. We have a program around having these last 8% conversations. We have a program to how you manage your brain under pressure. So, you know, kind of, Three big programs, but but the bottom line is, the, the there's a myth that to answer your question that people think emotional intelligence is about being nice. It's not, and it it's more about managing your emotions so you can do what's difficult in order to get the outcome that you know you they the organization desires. So JP, we have uh, uh what we'll, we'll at this part out um. I wanted to check to see, do you have a hard stop at 11? Because we have a couple more questions we want to ask. And if you do, if you have to get going, that's okay. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I can go a little longer for sure. Okay, cool. Um, so we'll, we'll ask um, a few more questions and then uh, we'll wrap up here in a couple of minutes or a few minutes. Sure, sure. 
So JP, just as uh, we always have a few questions that we that we love to ask all of our guests, and the first one is this: What's one thing that is helping you either personally or professionally right now? What one thing? Um, gosh, I I I think that one thing would be that. Probably having my own coach, I would say that as, and at times I've had a coach and at times I've had a therapist, but to me, I think that's probably what helps me, you know, be decisive for our business. For instance, right, 14 months ago, it was two years ago now that we decided, you know, we're going to get a president for our company. And so, you know, that's not always easy for a co-founder to, like, you know, move aside and have a president come in and give up a certain amount of control. Well, you know, that doesn't, well, maybe it does happen without my coach, but I think a coach goes a long way to really assessing, is that the right decision? So that's on a professional level. Um, so I would say everyone out there, you know, get a coach. I, I think I've already said that. Um, but it also helps me, whether it's a coach or a therapist, on a personal level. As I'm dealing with, you know, I've got teenage kids, my goodness. Teenagers, you know, you're not quite there, guys, but, you know, they're, they're hard times to manage. And so I, I swear that everything I've talked about today helps me as much at home with my teenagers as it does with my, um, you know, at work and, and coaching and kind of helping uh, leaders and individuals, you know, be resilient and be, you know, effective under pressure. So, um, so that would be, you know, a coach or a therapist. The point is this. One person outside of you, right? One person outside of you. In fact, I'll, I'll say this. Um, I've done a fair amount of work around resilience. And, and what we know is that in schools, in ed, well, not even in schools, just for people in a younger age group, the difference between those who are in very difficult situations, who are resilient, and those who are not, is one relationship, one connection. I call it the power of one. And so, you know, if you feel connected to one other person, you will be more resilient. You will be able to, you know, deal with the ups and downs that we all face that much more effectively. And so I actually really like your question because it kind of brings up an important point. But certainly for me, that that's uh, pretty instrumental in helping me, um, you know, be as, as good as I can be. And then um, what advice would you give to someone who is eager to learn? Well... My goodness, I think I think it's right back to the idea of, you know, there are resources out there. I mean, for instance, and I, here's a bit of a plug, but we, we run a public program, uh, like an open to the public. Almost 95% of our programs are, you know, uh, internal to organizations. And, but, you know, we run public programs in New York, in Chicago, in, in Toronto. Um, in San Francisco. Uh, and so, you know, sign up for one of these programs. You know, that, that's what I would say. Um, you know, take, just, I think the biggest thing is own your learning. That, that's, and I feel like I've said that, but I'll just reiterate. Don't wait for somebody. You know, own it. Commit to it. Think, hey, how can I get better? And, and don't wait for anyone. I mean, when I work with athletes, one of the biggest things that I love working with athletes is they will do anything to get better. Which is, by the way, why you need such strict drug protocols because they will do anything to get better. And that's a bit, you know, that's a bit strong. But the point is that if you know, you know, for an athlete, you will do anything and everything to try to get better. And there's a real drive, and I and I really admire that drive. And so I would say to folks, you know, find ways to kind of tune into that drive. Um, and in some ways. It, it, it's about going to meaning. What matters for you? You know, what really matters inside? What, what kind of life do you want? Um, one other thing I'll say, and I talk about this in, in the, the book I wrote, Performing Under Pressure, but I talk about, you know, set up your own board of directors, right? So I've been in a men's club for many, many years, and, you know, we talk about our goals. And, again, it's almost that power of one, but with a few more folks. And in some ways, that works as like a, peer coaching group and that's been really effective so so there's things you can do that cost to all the listeners and there's things you can do that doesn't cost and the only person stopping you 
course, is you. And then what if you could have everyone learn one thing? Now, this one thing could be something really benign and, and just not really a big deal, like picking up golf. Or it could be something very philosophical and even tactical. What would that one thing be? In in terms of kind of anything in life it or emotional intelligence or, or it could be anything. It could be you want people to know how to make to roast the perfect marshmallow. <laughs> hmm. Or it could be tactical. It could be philosophical. It could be whatever. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll say this. I, I used to joke um, some years back. That if I didn't go into this, what I'm doing now, um, I, I probably should have been uh, like a matchmaker, like started a company that like match.com or, or whatever. Um, although I didn't, there was no internet, so that didn't you know, come into my head. And the reason is because when you look at our happiness, when you look at what correlates with our most happy and our, our um, a, a, a best life, a meaningful life, a life that we all would consider kind of quote-unquote successful, what's clear is that the biggest driver is our relationships to others. And so my one kind of thing I, I, I challenge everyone to learn is how can you be better in relationships? How can you be um, how can you connect more? Because the, what comes out of that resilience, what comes out of that uh, the, the more meaning, what comes out of that more happiness, what comes out of that higher performance? Like I would say it's that connecting is probably the single most important thing anyone can learn. I'm still learning it. Um, everyone's still learning it. So you know, wherever you're starting on your path, I'll say this to all listeners, it's okay, right? The question is, is are you moving, you know, to get better every day or are you, are you just regressing to get worse? So that the great question. Now, now it took me a minute, but uh, that would be my answer. And then finally, what are you learning right now? What am I learning right now? Um... Gosh, that's, uh, I mean, it's on so many levels. Um, I would say, and this can sound really interesting and, and, and personal, which is, I think, why you're asking the question, but even maybe more when you're looking for, but I'm much better when I, when I get lots of sleep. And so I'm trying to learn how can I, go to sleep earlier. I, I don't have problems. Well, unless I'm dealing with something, I might wake up, but generally I sleep pretty well, but it's how can I, I often say if I can master the night, like get to sleep early enough, then it means I will wake up and do my mindfulness sitting in the morning. I'll do my journaling. I'll get started in the day so much better. I'll be better during the day be more resilient, more thoughtful, more decisive, a better listener. So I would say that would be, um, you know, something I've struggled with for a long time because I just like to stay up way too late. So learning how to get to bed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's and I'm sure that you've probably seen some of this research as well too, but it's amazing uh, some of the stuff that's coming up coming out right now about the importance of sleep and being real, well rested and how it affects the rest of our day. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, we've done work with NASA um, and, you know, there's something called the NASA nap. And the idea is that if you take a nap at a strategically, uh, a strategic time of the day, and I'll tell you when that is, that you increase your cognitive capacity um, and cognitive performance by 25 to 34%. And so here, here's a quick tip for everyone. If you go to bed at midnight, which regrettably is when I normally go to bed, and you wake up at 6 in the morning, for argument's sake, the half point is 3 a.m. Add 12 hours, so that's now 3 p.m. 3 p.m. is the optimal time for most of us to have a nap. 
if you take a 20 to 30 minute nap at that point, you will be 24 to you know 35 percent or whatever the numbers are more effective cognitively the rest of the day. So I'm with you on that. I, I'm I, but I'm still struggling to get to bed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, JP, thank you so much for being on the Learner's Corner today. If people want to continue to learn from you, pick up uh, your books, anything like that, where's the best place for them to go? Sure. So the, the company that I co-founded um, is, uh, it can be found at www.ihht, as in Peter.com. So Institute for Health and Human Potential, ihht.com. Um, and, uh, so that would be probably the best place. The book is called Performing Under Pressure. It's, you can find it, you know, kind of in most fine bookstores, as they say, or online. And, uh, that's probably the best place to learn about what we're doing. Great. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Pleasure's all mine. Good luck to you guys. All right, Caleb. We have just had a great conversation. I'm curious. What'd you learn? I think one of the, uh, his tips about learning to control your reactions mm. and um, learning to take the necessarily necessary time after being really emotional yep. before responding. And I think that was the thing for me that really yep. stood out. Yep, yep, yep. With you. Now, if you enjoyed this episode, the best way to make sure you don't miss our next episode is by talking with... Is by talking. I don't know what I'm saying there. No, that's okay. We're talking with someone next week. But you can listen to that by subscribing to the podcast. Yes, and you definitely won't miss our next episode. And guess who we're we're talking with next week? Who is it? I don't even know. We're talking with Trip Crosby. Oh, my gosh. I know him. Yeah, what do you know about Trip? Trip's a funny guy. That's it. That's it? That's all that you know? That's what I got. Well, I guess to find out what he does, I'm just kidding. Um, Trip... YouTube sensation, Trip, Trip he's and Tyler. A, he's a director right now. He's a director. Um, he's, he's working on a movie. Uh, he Com- is... Very funny. Yeah. Now, I don't know if you would classify him as a comedian. I don't... I Kind of. But he is... Just type his name into... Funny. Uh, type in Trip and Tyler into YouTube. You'll find plenty of stuff. Anyway, the best way to make sure you don't miss that episode is by subscribing Which to our podcast on whatever podcast player you use. Just repeating again. Do that, and then after you do that, listen, and then um, rate and review the podcast. Also, yes. Also, if you want to check out our Learner's Corner recommended resource of the week, go to our show notes, and you'll have a link right there to go buy Austin Cleon's book, Show Your Work. Love that book. All right, guys. We have one more thing to tell you before we leave. Guys and girls, why do I keep doing that? Um, Caleb, at the end of this month... We're doing a new thing. What's the new thing? Well, as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, we are uh, releasing uh, some of the things that we learned this week or this month and some of the things that we learned from. So, again, best way to make sure you don't miss it. Subscribe. Subscribe. And we're going to nerd out. And mic drop. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. My name is Kayla Mason. My name is Todd Ixenball. Till next time, keep learning and keep growing. Deuces, y'all. Deuces, y'all.